We've talked about Hyundais and Kias being easily stolen cars, but Cleveland has an interesting lead in some ways in this trend. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Laura Johnston. And Lisa is starting us off by talking about those stolen cars. Does Cleveland lead the nation in the percentage of total stolen cars that are Hyundais and Kias, Lisa? Not quite, but we're pretty close. So this is data that USA Facts gathered from over 500 police departments, you know, in their theft records. And in December of 2022, 66.5% of the cars stolen in Cleveland were Hyundais or Kias. So that's 465 out of 699 vehicles stolen. But we were beaten by Toledo there. Are number one nationally. 70.3% of their thefts were Hyundais of Kias, but they had a smaller, you know, theft, but the ratio is what matters here. So it was 173 of 246 cars stolen were either Hyundais or Kias. Uh, as far as raw numbers, Chicago is number one. They've had 1,483 stolen between July and December of last year. Cleveland is number two, though, in total monthly thefts. So we had 179 stolen in the first six months of last year, but then that really escalated in the second half. Almost 1,600 were stolen in the second half of last year. I'm going to go out on a wacky limb here and say there's a bright side to this story and that it shows that the thieves in Cleveland are more tech savvy than thieves elsewhere because that's why they're taking advantage of this. They've learned how to do this from watching their TikTok videos and in a much greater percentage, they're putting that science to work for them to steal cars. I, I, It's just so odd that Cleveland would be mm-hmm. one of the leaders in this. I mean, everybody watches TikTok, right? So so why would we be so far ahead? I, I, I honestly don't know. But, you know, they, they say, you know, everyone wants to draw this back to those videos on TikTok that's starting showing up in June of 2022 by the Kia boys. And they were demonstrating how to steal by using a USB charger. That's how they're stealing it. And the video went viral before it was removed. But really, the thefts began to escalate a couple years before that in Milwaukee. In 2020, 71% of the stolen cars um, by April of 2021 were Hyundais or Kias. And of course, we don't know city by city who leads in the percentage of Kia and Hyundai ownership. So maybe Cleveland has more of these cars as a percentage of, of brand names, but it's just an interesting factoid that we're so close to the top of this. And what is going on in Toledo? Well, what's going on in the whole Midwest? I mean, all of the towns you named are like in the Midwest. Are we just like, we buy economical cars because Kias tend to be less expensive? I don't know. That's fascinating. I don't know. know. Interesting story. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is one of the reasons violent crime has been rampant in Cleveland because the city has too few trees? Laura, is this one of those ipso facto, not really true pieces of logic, or is there something behind that finding? 
Well, there's certainly no hard proof, and it's not if then, then, you know, but there's certainly a correlation between the declining tree canopy and an increase in violence. And I am a huge proponent of trees. They are amazing in all the good things they do. They can improve air quality, soak up storm runoff, prevent erosion, conserve energy. They reduce blood pressure when you're looking at them and your stress hormones. They increase property values. And without trees, we have these urban heat islands. And that's not only is it hotter, but yeah, that is where the violence tends to be higher. So in the early 1900s, the tree canopy in the Forest City, which is Cleveland's nickname, covered 94%. We lose about 75 acres of tree cover a year in Cleveland. And that's not just development. That's trees that have reached the end of their natural life and are not being taken care of as well as they should. So the tree canopy is now as low as it's ever been at 18%. Cuyahoga is roughly double that at 35%. And we're looking at some of the highest gun violence in decades. And I I don't think you can say if you plant a tree in your yard, you're never going to get shot, right? That's ludicrous. But this idea that trees make a just a, a healthier, more pleasant way of life, and that it's a better place to live when there are trees, I, I would not argue with that. I'm not buying this at all. I'm just not buying it. <laughs> I mean, let's face it. Trees provide cover. If you want to have the the darkness of night, doing it under trees gives you more cover. I think these you could see these both as symptoms that of a of a decaying, poverty stricken city. Mm-hmm. That there are fewer trees being planted because the city is in poverty, and there are more people turning to crime because the city is in poverty. But the thought that if we plant more trees, it'll reduce the crime, that seems preposterous to me. I, I would love to see somebody sit across from a table and with a straight face say that is the mechanism by which you can reduce gun crime. Well, it is not the only thing that we should be doing, right? We should be reducing guns on the street. But I think if you plant trees, it makes a better neighborhood. And if you're more proud to live in your neighborhood, if you're more optimistic, if your health is better, if you have more opportunities, maybe you aren't going to be turning to gun violence. And and the heat island, I think... You can point at, remember when it, when it gets hot in the summertime, that's when we say, oh God, it's going to be a violent weekend, right? Like if it's cold out and rainy out, people don't go shoot each other. Like it's when the tempers boil and the temperatures are hot that, that it happens more. I, I mean, I'm not saying that's directly related, but it just, it tends to happen. Is there a study that shows whether unicorns and rainbows have any impact on crime? I mean, if there were unicorns <laughs> and rainbows, then I think there would be less gun violence, sure. But no, uh-huh. I mean, well, you guys, you guys are talking about correlation, and Chris, you're talking about both symptoms. I mean, it, it seems kind of apparent to me that that this is a discussion of investment, care, attention paid to certain neighborhoods over others, and I, it seems like it all kind of flows from that. I mean, mm-hmm. isn't that what you guys are saying? Yeah, I, there are a lot of causes of, of the crime wave, and I think most of them are going to be socioeconomic. And the lack of trees in a neighborhood is another socioeconomic factor. The, the city can engineer that. They can go plant more trees, but that's not going to help the people living in the neighborhood overcome the socioeconomic challenges that often drives people into a life of crime. It's an interesting but, story to think about. It's These kind of correlations are always great for discussions, which is why we're having this one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. After Cleveland City Council complained that railroad companies don't care about the condition and appearance of their facilities, we went out to take some pictures. Courtney, did what we found back up what council members have been saying? 
Yeah, sure, sure seems like it. Our report or our photographer, Josh Gunner, went out around the city just to kind of document the state of railroad infrastructure. He he surveyed mostly Norfolk Southern uh, lines, but he also found, you know, Amtrak commuter lines and some CSX properties. And and the vast takeaway from those photos, you can check them out on our website. Is just the majority of bridges. He, he found of, of 20 or so bridges he surveyed, he found four that seemed to be in fine condition, but 16 others, 75% of the bunch was just uh, looking in pretty rough shape. Josh found there was, you know, rusty steel beams and, and, you know, aesthetic issues, peeling paint, graffiti. But then, you know, what, what I found most troubling in looking at the pictures is the, is the, just the crumbling concrete mm-hmm. on the undersides and support structures mm-hmm. of these bridges. Now I'm no engineer that looks mighty scary. I don't know what this, you know, I don't know what an engineer would say, but you know, one bridge he took a photo of, it was over a hundred years old. You got to imagine that maybe these haven't had the capital upgrades over time that we'd like to see. There are inspections of bridges, and they rate them, and and they're supposed to upgrade them. You're not supposed to have concrete falling off of them because that can injure people. But the aesthetic part of this is is disturbing because the railroad companies can just decide not to do it, and that's poor citizenship. Look, I just spent a small fortune because the tree in my tree lawn, the city-owned tree, turned my sidewalk into Earthquake Central. And so I had to pay a company to come out and level it all because you want to be a good neighbor. You don't want people walking down the street to see this horrible-looking earthquake zone in your tree lawn. That's what the train companies should be doing. They should be looking at these things and going, man, we need a coat of paint on this, or we need to sandblast this rust off or do something. And they're not, which is what city council's big complaint was. They show utter disdain for the cities where they are resident. Yeah, absolutely. And in that big hearing last week between council and members of Mayor Justin Bibbs' administration, we heard exactly those kinds of complaints, Chris, and calls for the city to kind of ramp up its efforts to to try and wrangle the railroads into fixing up their properties the way they say, you know, homeowners are required, like your example, to take care of their properties. And I, I did get a little bit of an update from the administration yesterday when we were putting this together. So one of the one of the suggestions from council last week was let's put together a full list of all the properties in Cleveland where we want to see the railroads improve them, bring them up, you know, and the administration, the mayor's office of capital project is working on compiling that list. Now they're seeking to get sit downs with lobbyists to try and basically what the city wants to do is just create better lines of communication with the railroads who they say don't really like to have those lines of communications with cities. And the hope there is that they can nudge them towards repairs on this big list of properties they're compiling. One of the things that ought to be on that list is the last time the bridges were painted. Because I swear, a lot of these bridges, the last coat of paint they got that wasn't graffiti was probably decades ago. These are steel structures, steel rust, paint fails, and you have to continuously maintain it or they look like this. The photos are disturbing. You're right. You look at them and think, is that safe? But what really strikes you in almost every case is they just are not kept up in a visual way, which shows disdain for the people that live and drive nearby. Good stuff online. Check it out. It's cleveland.com. Laura, is that in the paper today? Is it in the plain dealer today? It's on the front page. It's the front page. It's a whole big shot that Josh took 
of it's the whole horizontal thing. So yeah, but lots more pictures online. I think there's 42 photos that Josh took of 16 different bridges. So just be the sure to check them out. The railroad companies are sticking it to us. You're listening <laughs> to Today in Ohio. Is the new CEO at Metro Health planning to kill the idea of a park that was central to the vision of the new campus started by her predecessor? Lisa, this park has been central to the vision. It's something that everybody thought would improve that neighborhood and that corner of town. And then rumors started spreading that it was going to die. Well, President and CEO Erica Steed is not saying that. She's just saying that, you know, since she came on board early this year, that she's performing due diligence on this $1 billion campus transformation plan. I mean, she had nothing to do with it. She came to it when it was, you know, starting to move ahead. She says we are still full steam ahead. She loves the concept for a hospital in a park for the Metro Health campus. But she says, you know, these plans were created before she came here, before the pandemic. And she says there have been local changes to the healthcare landscape since then. So, but this is kind of already in motion. I mean, the 1992 outpatient pavilion on the east side of West 25th is supposed to be raised next year to make way for this 12 acre park. And they, this is was seen as the keystone of this transformation, the new front door for Metro Health, a community asset for the Clark Fulton neighborhood. Um, a historic house and church west of the Glick Center has already been demolished. And this is for the first few acres of that park. It's now landscaped. They have a temporary picnic area and other amenities as they await the full build out if it occurs. Um, Metro Health architect Walter Jones, who led the redevelopment plans, retired last year, but Steed requested that he come back last month. So he is now the interim senior vice president of facilities, construction, and campus transformation. So I don't... I don't see a no there. I just think that she's doing her job. She's taking a look at somebody else's plans to see whether they still work. Yeah. I mean, in in many ways, this isn't news, right? She comes in. Of course, she's going to do due diligence, especially since her predecessor was ousted because of some very serious spending irregularities. You want to look at that billion dollar project now. The the state auditor is looking at Metro Health because of what happened. So it's good news that she wants to look and make sure the money is being well spent. I I just wonder how it this mushrooms so quickly into fears that the park wouldn't be built. Because that's not what she's saying. She's saying, no. I love this idea. Mm-hmm. I just want to make sure that we're on sound financial footing mm-hmm. given my position here. Absolutely. And, you know, for all Boutrous's faults, I think the vision for Metro Health is a wonderful vision. He really wanted to tie Metro Health campus to the community. They're talking about building housing on the edge of campus there. So despite his his other proclivities, you know, he did have a vision for Metro Health. Oh, it yeah, it's grand. It's a it's a great plan. I think that's why the mere thought that this wouldn't happen rippled so quickly with with fear. And she's rightly put that fire out by just saying, look, I got a job to do here. We have to be fiscally responsible. I love the plan. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is Ohio House Speaker Jason Stevens adamant about maintaining parts of House Bill 6, even though the entire law was forged in the biggest bribery scheme in state history? Laura, I just don't get how these lawmakers cannot see how bad it is for Ohio to maintain a rotten, stinky law on the books. Why don't they repeal it and just pass the stuff they want to keep? Maybe they're afraid they wouldn't get it passed again. 
maybe because one of the coal plants getting hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer subsidies is in Stevens District, which I did not know until I read this story. So we're being charged as Ohioans an estimated $700 million on monthly bills through 2030. And the Kiger Creek power plant in Stevens District is one of the two plants that's getting that. And here's what Steven said. He says, it's been very beneficial. It's actually been, I would argue, very beneficial to the state of Ohio and the regional power grid from the standpoint of baseload power. Obviously, it's good for Steven. So he said he wouldn't repeal any subsidy. And he said, we'll see if he'd even allow this issue to come to a floor vote. Uh, So far, since this took effect in 2020, we've been spent $158 million subsidizing these coal plants operated by Ohio Valley Energy Corporation. And don't forget, we're not just doing this. We've also gutted our renewable energy standards. And basically, I mean, it's very clear that our Ohio state government does not care about green energy or any kind of renewable energy in Ohio. And there was a report out just uh, yesterday that across the United States, renewable energy, not including natural gas, uh, was bigger last year for the first time than Mr. Stevens coal. That look, if, if he's worried about losing this, this isn't a debate about the subsidy. It's the idea that a corrupt law remains on the books. Go to his body, pass the subsidies in a separate law, then repeal HP six. I mean, there's a way to do it, but the image of Ohio having a crooked, stinky law, and they're saying, well, the ends justify the means. That's a horrible message to the citizens of Ohio. I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I mean, Governor Mike DeWine said the coal subsidies should be repealed. Uh, but Matt Huffman, the Senate president, has no interest in doing it. Stevens called it throwing out the baby with the bathwater. But I, I agree. Like, if you if you think these things are so important, then get rid of the law that has been proven in court to have been completely corrupt and go after the things that you want. I, I don't know. They probably just don't want scrutiny on it. They, they have what they want. They don't want to undo it. Well, but take the baby out of the bathwater first then. Pass the subsidy <laughs> pass the subsidy before you repeal it, but get the, the the law off the books. These guys are are just don't have a sense of of integrity here. Oh, they're really? Standing, <laughs> yeah, but they're standing by a crooked law because the ends justify the means. It's a terrible look. And you know, Mike DeWine's name remains on the most crooked law in the history of the state. You know what's really disheartening about this is a lot of the Republicans who voted to get rid of some parts of House Bill 6, you know, they voted against it because they didn't want those renewable subsidies, you know, and they don't want them to come back. So, you know, ugh. Okay, so pass a law that says we're going to keep renewables as they are now, which is bad, but pass it, and we're going to subsidize coal plants, but we're going to repeal HB6 and get rid of it. The whole thing just stinks. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have a new set of projects that Cuyahoga County will handle using its federal stimulus dollars. Courtney, part of Stimulus Watch, what are they? Yes. So Lucas DiPrilli gave us a rundown of this latest list. It amounts to $2.3 million. And all but one of these projects, there's about a dozen, all but one come from Councilman Jack Schron. And this kind of stems from council's decision to split up a portion of the ARPA dollars among the council members for each council member to kind of decide where to put that money. We've heard a lot on this podcast about that method, but <clears throat> what we saw this week was this list of proposals from Councilman Jack Schron. He was one of the folks, as Lucas kind of shared with us in earlier reporting, 
he was one of the council members who, who tried to use a somewhat competitive process to determine where to put his money. And he used like a scoring committee and capped each proposal at $250,000. So we kind of got a sense of what happened when a council used like somewhat of a process to decide the spending year. <clears throat> Excuse me. And a quarter of a million dollars each are going, if council approves them, to road projects in Glen Willow and Oakwood, uh, wastewater treatment plant improvements in Chagrin Falls, a, a new pool at the Aquatic Community Center in Mayfield Heights, an expansion of a park in Solon, new fire station headquarters in Broadview Heights, just a lot of these different community kind of largely capital needs. And then we did see one proposal from District 9 Councilwoman Meredith Turner, and she put forth a proposal to give 10 $10,000 to enterprise community partners to pay advisors to help with homelessness. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you pointed out, Jack Shron. We talk a lot about the wayward nature of this council and how they squander money. But Jack Shron is one of the responsible members. And when when this controversy first came up, he was very clear about how I am trying to do this in a responsible fashion. And I think the way he has spent his money bears that out. Yeah, and, and and like we see, it, it 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 is interesting that this approach resulted in smaller dollar projects. He's not putting down a million to to one project, but he has spread the peanut butter out across communities in his district for these capital needs. You're listening to today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, what percentage of Ohio public school students are homeless these days? Well, there's a glimmer of hope here because numbers have trended down. This is data from the National Center for Homeless Education. And in the school year of 2018-2019, 32,780 Ohio kids were homeless. That's about 1.9% of the student body. But the 2021 school year, it dropped a fair amount. Uh, 24,699 students were homeless. That was 1.5 of the student percent of the student body. So four tenths of a percent improvement, but we'll take it out of the, uh, you know, the demographics, just seven tenths of a percent of the homeless kids were white. 3% were black and 1.7% were Hispanic. And graduation rates among home, homeless students is very low. It's 50%. That's extremely low. Um, but there's, in, if we're looking at it nationally, you don't see a lot of difference at different grade levels as far as homelessness goes, but they found much higher rates among students who are disabled or who have English as a second language. And the highest by far um, of homeless kids nationally Hispanic kids, 39.4%. Interestingly enough, white kids came in second at 26.3% and black kids trailing at 24.3%. Uh, in the U.S., there are about 1.1 million homeless students, and that's about 2.2% of the entire student body. But that is down 21% from the 2018-2019 school year. We know from our coverage of the Cleveland schools what an educational challenge it is when you're dealing with homeless students because their their presence, their attendance gets hit and they are transient moving from school to school. It's a it's one of the toughest parts of dealing with the high poverty school district. It's good to know that the numbers are going down, but they're still pretty high in Cleveland. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland will be the site of the North American touring debut of a musical as part of the KeyBank Broadway series at Playhouse Square. 
Laura, you go to these things. What is it and what else is on the schedule announced Tuesday? I know you were most excited. I got a message from you, I think, at six in the morning. I did, that it was coming out. This is the Back to the Future, the musical. So that's going to have the North American touring debut. We also have a show that's coming to us before it even goes to Broadway, and that's a new version of The Wiz, which is an updated version of The Wizard of Oz. But I've had my Broadway series tickets since the Book of Mormon came to town 11 years ago. And I'm one of about 44,000, I think, in Cleveland, which is astonishing. And that's what allows us to get such great shows, according to Greg Hassel. He's the Playhouse Square new president and CEO. They were up 5,000 season ticket holders from a year ago. And no Broadway venue in North America has a bigger subscriber base than Playhouse Square. So hats off to everybody who supports it. So we're going to get The Wiz, Funny Girl, Company. Those are all classics. And then the new ones are The Girl from North Country, Mrs. Doubtfire, MJ, which is Michael Jackson, as well as that Back to the Future. And the girl from the North Country, of course, is Bob Dylan. So some... Yes, yes. It's um, it's a 2022 Tony nominee for Best Musical. It uses 20 iconic Bob Dylan songs to tell the story of a group of travelers whose paths cross during the Great Depression. So that sounds interesting. MJ uh, obviously focuses on Michael Jackson from his rise to stardom from Jackson 5 to the launch of the Dangerous Tour in 1992. And what's cool about Back to the Future, I guess it's currently in London, hasn't uh, debuted in Broadway yet. That'll be June. Um, It's actually, it was written, the show was written by the guy who wrote the movie from 1985 and songs by... Um, Alan Silvestri and Glenn Ballard. So it's a big deal. It's going to be the official tour launch. There's going to be special effects. The DeLorean, the clock tower will will all be there. I think it's going to be at the State Theater. Um, The rest of them are at the, most of them are at the Palace at Playhouse Square. But no Michael J. Fox or Christopher Lord. How will it even feel like Back to the Future? You know, everybody's going to show up with that red vest, right? (laughs) (laughs) Be dressing like Michael J. Fox. All right, something to look forward to next year. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, Courtney, you wrote a story a week or two ago about how Cleveland is finally going to move out of the Stone Age and put in parking meters that you can pay by credit card or by app. What's the reaction, Ben? Yeah, so, I mean, I think people are pretty excited here in Cleveland about this about this change, you know, no one carries around enough quarters to really feed those meters or, you know, it's a pain to do so. So people are ready to step into the 21st century, I think here and, and use credit cards and their cell phone apps to pay for parking. And we're trying to do some follow up to get an understanding of how this will impact Cleveland. Namely, I'm, I'm personally curious on how it's going to affect city revenues. Uh, you know, Mayor Justin Bibbs' team says this is expected to drive up parking revenue. The thought is currently people don't pay their meters because they don't have quarters because people don't carry cash and coins like that anymore. And and the thought is we can up parking revenue because people would actually have the ability to pay using the credit cards and phones they have in their pockets. So that's generally what I found as we've been doing this follow-up reporting to be what, what happens in cities across America. Cleveland's really, really late to the ball game here. It, it appears that most cities made this switch about a decade ago and many cities did did prior switches in the years before that. So we're, we're quite behind things. And lessons learned from those cities kind of show us that revenue does tend to go up. And, and usually the thought is that parking tickets will go down. 
But um, I spoke to one gentleman in Pittsburgh. He's the head of their parking authority. And and they curiously found that uh, with better enforcement that's, that's that comes through this new parking meter system, that actually ticket revenue hasn't really changed. So we could be seeing some more money pour into city coffers with this change. I will caution, though, in Indianapolis, I did find some reporting that the projections for how much additional revenue this would bring in were were overblown and, and didn't quite live up to projections several years out after they made the change. I sent a question about this to the people who subscribe to my texts the morning texts I sent out about stories are working on. I sent one out about this, by the way, nothing today, nothing tomorrow. Cause I'm actually off the next two days, but I'll be back Friday. And I was shocked by how I said, I don't carry rolls of quarters. So the city loses parking revenue for me. Cause I have to go find a garage. And I asked how many people are like that. And I was surprised half of the people. And I heard from a lot, well over a hundred who said they carry around the quarters and they use the meters. There were others like me who say, yeah, I who carries quarters anymore. But a whole lot of people did have coins in their cars, which I would think is uh, attractive to thieves. They did say <laughs> they were they were very happy with the idea that they could renew the meter remotely so that if they if they didn't put enough quarters in and the meter's expiring because the meeting goes long, they're likely to get a ticket and this has the ability, my meeting's going wrong, I need an extra half hour. They're very excited to get this. They can't believe it's taken this long to get there. Some are worried that this will reduce the number of people employed writing tickets, although it sounds like from what you're finding, if the parking ticket revenue remains, then probably not. Well, count me among the 50% who carries quarters, <laughs> especially when I go downtown. I mean, it costs 75 cents for an hour to park like on Superior, East Ninth or whatever. So, I mean, I don't know, but I'm a Luddite. You know me, I'm cash well, and carry. Well, I do carry, I keep the quarters in like a, the little thing that used to be an ashtray in your car, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like last night I went to West 25th Street with my kids uh, to pins to that arcade um, bowling place. There was a spot right in front I paid a quarter at 5.30 and I got to park there for the rest of the night because after six, mm-hmm. it's free. So I'll be interested to see if the times change with the whole new meters because generally weekends and after six, it's free. But I, I agree. Um, I was meeting my sister there. And when I tried to explain to her that Cleveland meters still take quarters, she's like, what What are you talking about? Right? She lived in Columbus for a long time. And uh, there it's all app all the time. So. <laughs> The only the other problem is they can because they're going to have to pay a percentage of the revenue to the credit card companies that you're you're attaching these to. They're probably going to raise the rates because yeah, it's not going to be a quarter for a half hour anymore because that's incredibly cheap. In in my research, looking at city, you know, I've been looking at examples: Buffalo, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Cincy, just kind of around the region, peer cities, and it does seem like a lot of the cities that made the switch paired it with an increase or a change in hours. Mm-hmm. We don't know what they're going to do in Cleveland, but it is worth noting that that happens. I think one interesting example from Pittsburgh, and some of this is obscured by the rate increase, but before they rolled out their new system, they were collecting about six mil in parking revenue. A year after they rolled out their new system and did a rate increase it was about 20 million a year all right um i laura i do believe it's a quarter for 20 minutes unless there's different zones not a quarter for a half hour but i'm telling you it it showed a half hour when i put a quarter in it so at least on west 25th street yeah maybe downtown it's more expensive yeah for me it was 75 cents for an hour 
I think that's what downtown is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So Courtney, you know, all these facts, when are you going to share them on our various platforms? Well, um, I've got to publish a story. I've got an interview here shortly and I'll uh, get cracking. <laughs> so sometime in the next few days. Okay. Look for Courtney's story, a preview of a fascinating piece. There's a lot of interest in parking meters. I know. Cause I heard from a lot of people. That's it for the Wednesday episode. Thank you, Lisa, Courtney, and Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Thursday talking about some more news. 